On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read the first seven verses of chapter 5 for you, though we will only uh, cover verse 1 this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7, beginning now in chapter 5, verse 1, where we read, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, as we've made our way through the book of Ephesians, we saw in the first three chapters some of the deepest, richest theology in in all of the Bible. And chapter 3 ended with Paul's prayer in which he asked that we may be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to grasp the, the vastness of Christ's matchless love for us, and that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul asked that we experience a greater measure of God's presence in our lives, that we might just be saturated with God, that our lives may be more and more emptied of self to be filled completely with Him so that His character, His attributes, and His love define our existence, our lives, and our behavior. And God's supreme goal in saving us and bringing us to Himself is to make us more and more like Himself by filling us with all that He is and has. And that is the goal toward which we move. We are in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And that brought us to the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, which, uh, as you'll remember, are practical in nature and focus on Christian behavior because the new birth initiates the believer into a brand new life that is actually to be lived. And Paul began in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, with an introductory statement on the Christian life, which he described as a walk, and he said, Therefore... I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And those two verses set the stage then for all the exhortations that follow, beginning in chapter 4, verse 3, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20, as Paul fleshes out for us what actually is involved in walking worthy of our calling. And in chapter 4, verses 3 to 16, he dealt with walking worthy of our calling within the church. And in those verses, Paul emphasized the church's unity in the Spirit, its diversity in spiritual gifts, attaining doctrinal unity and growing to maturity in Christ-likeness, all of this within the unity of the body of Christ. And then beginning in uh, verse 17 of chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul turns to how we're to walk worthy of our calling in our personal lives, not only in our relation to fellow believers, but also to the world around us. 
Because of what God has done in our lives through the gospel, we're called to live out our new identity in Christ with a lifestyle that is different from the world and different from our pre-Christian past. And so beginning in verse 17, Paul told us that this involved, first of all, no longer living the way we lived as unbelievers. And so therefore, we're to be putting off all the old sinful habits, patterns, and practices that belong to our former life as an unbeliever because that old person that we were, that old self is dead. He said we must also continually be renewing our minds through the word of God and prayer. And then, because it's never enough merely to put off sin, we must also put on the new self, that new person that we are in Christ, and then we're to live in a way consistent with that newness. And then in verses 25 to 32, he gave us six examples of what living out this new life in Christ looks like, practically speaking. Six examples of what our conduct as Christians should be. In verse 25, uh, he said we're not to lie, but to speak the truth. In verses 26 and 27, we're to be angry, but not to sin in our anger, in our anger and, and because we don't want to give opportunity to the devil. In verse 28, he said we're not to steal, but rather to work hard in order to give and to help those in need. In verse 29, he said, we're to speak, not speak what is corrupt and harmful, but rather what is good and builds up. In verse 30, he commanded us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. And then last week in verse 31, Paul gave us six sinful, unchristlike attitudes that were to be put away. And he wrote there in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then in verse 32, he gave us three Christ-like attitudes were to cultivate. He said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And in the last part of verse 32, he gave us the motive or the reason that we're to cultivate these attitudes. We're to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving because God in Christ forgave us. We should be a people known for kindness and forgiveness based on the depth of the kindness and forgiveness that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. Because if God in Christ can forgive us and, and all of our sins, then there's nothing for which we should not forgive another person. I mean, whatever the sin may be, doesn't matter. Because it doesn't measure up to the sins which we each have committed against God and which He has forgiven in Christ. And so we, of all people, should be always ready and willing to forgive. And so with regard to all that, that we have seen in chapter 4, Paul says, this is how you as new creations in Christ, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, are supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to be living. And that's brought us this morning to chapter 5. Now, as you consider all that Paul has said uh, so far to this point about living out the Christian life, I, I wonder this morning if you're feeling the way I sometimes do that you're a poor excuse for a Christian. I mean, think with me for a moment what, what the ideal Christian looks like. And maybe it was uh, one of your parents. Maybe it was a, a friend at church or school or, or work uh, who always, always uh, seems to say the right things, always seems to do, do the right things, never seems to do anything sinful that would dishonor God or the church. I mean, they give every appearance of being, well, you know, a saint. Or perhaps it was someone from church history. You know, someone like a Jonathan Edwards or a Charles Spurgeon or Hudson Taylor or, or George Mueller or perhaps even Amy Carmichael or, or perhaps the Apostle Paul himself. And so with that person in mind, you know, you then ask yourself, well, how come my life doesn't resemble that person's? You know, why do I continue to fall short of, of being holy? Why do I say things, do things, think things that are sinful, you know, things that are not in line with Christian living and instead look more like my life before Christ. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one who's done this mental exercise. You know, surely a, a Christian should, should not live, talk, or think this way. 
And so what do we do when we see what's wrong? What do we do when we see what's wrong? Whether it's a lack of kind words, too much love for the world, too much time spent on things of little eternal value and, and not enough time given to, to the Lord and the things of the Lord. What do we do? Well, we usually decide we're going to try harder and, and do better. And so we set out to fix all these things. You know, we're going to fix them. And so for a day or two, we're all pumped up. Our outlook changes. You know, we can be good Christians. You know, we, we can live like we think we should. And we're just all gung-ho for a couple of days. But then we wake up one morning. We forget to focus on whatever it was we had started doing. And we're right back in the same situation as before. Our lives bear very little resemblance to the new creation we claim that we are in Christ. Well, that is what's going on in the Ephesian church as we pick up in chapter 5. I mean, Paul has just exhorted them, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You know, that's not the way you learn Christ. You're to put off your old self. You're to be renewed, put on the new self. And, and he's been laying out for them how they're to live and what their conduct as new creations in Christ is supposed to be. And Paul had to tell them this because some of them were struggling with living like they used to. You say, how do you know? Well, you don't tell someone not to live the way they used to unless they're doing that. And so the Ephesians needed to hear this. But we need to hear this. You know, they and we and all believers since them struggle with living a life that testifies of the God who has redeemed us. And so Paul in our passage today tells us in verse 1 the way in which we're to live the Christian life. He says we're to be imitators of God. And in verse 2, to do this, he tells us we're to walk in love as Christ loved us. But let's look at verse 1. And it begins with the word, Therefore. There's some debate as to whether the word therefore refers to what, what has preceded this or what comes after it, but it seems really that it, it refers to both. The word therefore indicates that Paul is now drawing his exhortations in verses 25 to 32 to a close, but it also introduces a new section in verses 1 through 14 in which he addresses the subject of moral purity. But before he gets to that subject, he begins, uh, he begins this section in verses 1 and 2 with a very, very important admonition for all of us. One commentator said that in verses 1 and 2, we, we come to what is perhaps Paul's supreme argument, to the highest level in doctrine and in practice, to the ultimate ideal. He points out that Paul is laying down here a, a principle that governs everything. The entire Christian life may be summed up as a life of imitating God as beloved children as we walk in love. And so having put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Paul says now in verse 1, notice, therefore be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And the Greek word translated be uh, actually means to become. And the type of word it is in the Greek indicates an, an ongoing process. In other words, this, this should be continually and increasingly their experience and ours. And so Paul is saying that, that we are to continually and, and increasingly become imitators of God. And the Greek word translated here as imitators is the word from which we get our English word mimic. And mimic means to copy closely, you know, specific characteristics of another person. It means to, to mimic or to imitate their words, their actions, their, their behavior, their, their characteristics. I mean, when we mimic someone, we, we act out what they're doing. We, we follow their lead, trying to copy their actions. I mean, we've probably all heard the expression, like father, like son. Well, I mean, many sons imitate or mimic the characteristics 
of their dads. And if you have any boys or sons in your family, you'll know what I'm talking about and what Paul is talking about. Generally speaking, boys want to be like their father. They, they like to sit in his chair. To take their, they like to take their dad's place. They try to walk like their dad. They try to talk like him. They're, they're imitating their dad all the time. The good points and at times the bad points. And it's a trait of sons to, to mimic or copy their dads because they just want to grow up to be a man just like him. And that's human nature, isn't it? Well, here in verse 1, Paul admonishes us to imitate our Heavenly Father. And this concept of imitation is not something that is foreign to the Apostle Paul. This isn't something new that he just kind of plugged in here. No, he told the Corinthians that he was their father in the gospel, and then he added in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And then later in the same letter, he said to the Corinthians again, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He also told the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul told the Thessalonians to imitate himself and Silvanus and Timothy. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, we're told to be imitators of other godly men, those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, we read, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so this concept of imitation is, is, not, a, is not foreign to Paul or to the New Testament. But our text is the only place in the New Testament where we are told to be imitators of God. But imitating God is, is not a new concept. It was often taught in the Old Testament and reiterated in the New. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, the Lord said, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And so there God is calling us to imitate him. We are to be holy because he is holy. And this was reiterated by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, where he writes, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Jesus himself taught us to imitate God. Not in so many words, but Jesus told us to imitate God when he said, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In the Sermon on the Mount, he went even further when he commanded, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this concept of imitation is, is not a new idea. And here Paul tells us that we are to continually, increasingly become imitators of God. That's pretty astounding. You know, that we would be told to imitate God, to, to be like God, is beyond amazing. Especially when we consider what Paul has already told us about ourselves earlier in the letter. I mean, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following Satan, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. We were tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart. We were callous, giving ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And yet we who at one time were dead in sin, separated, darkened, and hard-hearted, are now told to imitate God. And this command to imitate God is even more staggering when we consider what God is like. First of all, God is spirit. God is self-existent. It means that God has no origins and consequently is answerable to no one. God is self-sufficient. It means that God has no needs and therefore depends on no one. He is, 
God is infinite. He is eternal, which means that God has always existed and will always exist. He is immutable or unchangeable in His being. He is omnipotent. In other words, all-powerful. He is omnipresent, which means being everywhere at once. He is omniscient. In other words, He knows all things. He is sovereign. He is transcendent. Those are God's non-communicable attributes. They belong to God alone, and they make God, God. They are in God because He is God. And we as humans cannot share in the incommunicable attributes of God. We're never told anywhere to imitate the incommunicable attributes of God. We can't. We cannot imitate those characteristics of God. But God also has other attributes, attributes which are, are, are called communicable, which means they can be given or they can be shared. And these communicable attributes are no less overwhelming. And it's these in which we share, and it's these that we are to imitate. You say, well, what are they? Well, things like holiness, righteousness, justice, wisdom, faithfulness, goodness, love, mercy, grace, compassion, tenderness, forgiveness. All these are communicable attributes of God that we can also possess, though only to a finite extent. Because as finite human beings, we will not share in even the communicable attributes to the same extent extent that God has those attributes because we will always do them imperfectly. But the point is simply that we can possess and exercise these communicable attributes and as Christians we are expected to have them and expected to manifest them in our lives and in our living. So when it comes to God's communicable attributes we are to be imitators of God, Paul said. But you cannot imitate someone that you don't know, right? I mean, to imitate God, you you must know God. And so we need to understand that when Paul or any of the other biblical writers speak of imitating God, they do not present this as a way of salvation. Because no one in heaven is ever going to say, I got here because I was so much like God. That's not going to happen. And so the first thing we need to know about imitating God is that in our natural state, we are not only completely unable to do so, but we have absolutely no desire to do so. And this was Paul's point when he wrote in Romans chapter 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Also in Ephesians 2, Paul begins his teaching on salvation by saying that until God saves us by grace alone, we're not imitators of God at all, but rather of the devil. We're following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so you see, imitating God is is not a way of salvation for sinners, since no sinner can ever be godly or Christ-like on his own. Jesus did not come into the world, first of all, to be a moral example, but rather, first and foremost, he came to be a savior by dying on the cross for our sins. And so the first thing then in imitating God is that you must know God. Because you cannot imitate someone that you do not know. So before you can ever imitate God, you must know Him in a saving way. In other words, you must have a personal relationship with Him. You must be born again. You must confess your sin, put your faith and trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior and as your only hope of salvation. And if and when you are born again, you are given a new life in Christ. And there will of necessity be evidence of that new life. You will have new affections, new desires. You will have a new desire to love God, to obey Him, to know Him more intimately. You will love the things of God. You will love His Word. You will love His people and thus His church. And so first of all, to imitate God, we must know Him by having a personal relationship with Him. But that's not all. That's not all there is to knowing God. I mean, our our knowing God simply begins its salvation. 
That's just where it begins. I mean, to know him enough to imitate him, we must, we must spend time with him. Because how can we imitate him if we don't spend time with him? Well, the answer is, we can't. Because we will not even know what he's like. We won't even know what he says. We, we won't know what his behavior is if we don't spend time with him. Look, a child who spends very little time with his father is not going to be greatly influenced by him. I mean, influence is directly proportional to time spent together. I mean, when human fathers spend time with their children, you know, they'll pick up his mannerisms, the good, and again, unfortunately, also the bad. And they will watch how he treats their mother. And from that, they'll learn how to relate to others. They'll see his moral standards and, and will be influenced to follow the same standards. You know, they hear his language, whether it's kind or abusive, and, and they'll, they'll repeat that in their speech. And the point is simply that we must spend time with our Heavenly Father if we're ever going to know Him and become like Him. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In Philippians 3.10, Paul exclaimed that I might know Him. I mean, Paul's main goal in life his master passion was, was knowing Christ. And realize that when Paul wrote Philippians, he had met Christ 30 years prior. But yet he only wanted to know him more. Because you see, there, there is all the difference in the world between meeting someone and actually knowing someone. The knowledge that Paul is talking about here is a deep, intimate, personal knowledge. But that kind of ever-deepening knowledge of God and His ways only comes by spending time with Him in His Word, in prayer, and, and worship, listening to Him, responding to Him, talking to Him. And as we do this, our love for Him will grow and we'll begin to, to be like Him, imitate Him, we'll begin to think as He thinks and act as He acts and, and say what He says. And then one day we're going to see Him face to face. But building an intimate relationship like this is not something that takes place in the course of a day or two. Oh, it develops over an entire lifetime. You see, loved ones, the great aim and goal of our lives should be to know Him. I mean, this goes right along with our, our men's and women's study. That should be the great aim and goal of our lives, to know Him. And, and understand, knowing Him is not merely stuffing our heads with uh, theological or biblical knowledge. Because all that does is puff up. Knowing Him means having a personal, intimate relationship with Him. And this kind of personal knowledge of God is what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions in the world. Because you see, our faith is not one of systems and regulations and, and rituals. Our faith is, is personal and intimate. I mean, think of it, we have a relationship with a person who has changed our lives forever, and now we live in fellowship with Him. And He lives within us by His Holy Spirit. And, and we, we can know Him better and better as we walk with Him day by day. And so if you want God to change you so that you imitate Him in a way that, that in, in the way that you think and how you respond emotionally and how you relate to others and, and how you deal with trials, then you have to be diligent to spend consistent time alone with Him because there are no shortcuts. It is only by spending time with God that we are able to know Him well enough to become like Him. And oh, how we need men and women who are like God today. Okay, but we have to know Him. We have to have a personal relationship with Him. We also have to spend time with Him to get to know Him so that we can imitate Him. But, but then how do we do that? How do we imitate God? Well, First of all, have to be saved, spend time with Him, like we just said, that all makes sense. But even as a saved person, how do we imitate God who is spirit? And how do we do that? I mean, you cannot imitate someone or something that you cannot see, right? 
I mean, God is invisible. I mean, John said in 1 John, or not in, not, not in 1 John, but in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. I mean, God's spirit, he, he's invisible. See, our great dilemma as creatures is we cannot see or touch our creator, at least not with physical eyes. And so how are we supposed to imitate what we cannot see? Well, the good news is that God reveals himself to us. And first of all, of course, God reveals himself to believers on the pages of Scripture. But there's more to that. He also reveals himself to us in another way. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, where John said, no one has seen God, has ever seen God, he goes on to say in that same verse, the only God who is at the Father's side, He, the one who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Well, who is the only God? Who is the one who is at the Father's side who makes the Father known? Who is that? It's Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John said, And the Word, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when John says we beheld His glory, he's not only talking about the, the manifestation of that glory and light, he's talking about the attributes or characteristics of God which were manifest throughout the ministry uh, and life of Christ. I mean, John, you know, he could say it this way, we beheld His glory when we saw His love. We saw His mercy. We saw His grace. We saw His knowledge. We, we saw His power. We saw His justice, His holiness. We saw His compassion, His omnipotence. We saw His omniscience. We saw His anger, His goodness. We saw His kindness. We saw His patience. We saw it all. Turn with me to John chapter 14 for a moment. The Gospel of John chapter 14. Of course, the context of this is set in the upper room during what is called the upper room discourse. It runs from chapter 13 through the end of um, chapter uh, 17. And there in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now the present tense form of the word believe refers to an ongoing trust in him. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, keep on believing, trusting in the almighty, the invisible, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, immutable, infinite God, and also keep on believing or keep on trusting in me. And then look down in verse 6 in John chapter 14. Then Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And then in verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said, who has ever seen me has seen the Father. And, and this is one of the most staggering claims that Jesus ever made. And he's saying that he perfectly reveals the Father. And so in seeing Jesus, they were seeing the Father. No image or, or material likeness could depict God, but a person could. Specifically, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. The same love, compassion, mercy, and goodness which is evident in Jesus is evident in God the Father. Jesus was and is the revealer of God the Father. And so what men saw in Jesus' life was a picture of God's own life. And so when we see him taking little children in his arms, laying his hands on them and blessing them, we see how God feels toward children. 
When we see the compassion of Jesus stirred by human suffering and sorrow, we learn how our Father is touched by the sight of earthly suffering. When we see Jesus receiving sinners and eating with them, speaking forgiveness to the repentant who bowed at his feet and, and making lies by sin white and clean, we learn the mercy of God. When we follow Jesus to his cross and, and see him giving his life as a willing sacrifice, we see how God loves this world. And so if we want to see what God is like, all we have to do is turn to the gospel story because to know Jesus Christ is to know God the Father. To see Jesus is to see what God is like. All that the Father is in His love and grace and mercy and purity are revealed in Christ. In the man Jesus of Nazareth and His life of lowly service, even to the point of death, God made known uh, God is made known, a God in whom we can truly believe and, and find peace, peace with God and the peace of God, which is the answer to the anxiety of a troubled heart and, and a troubled world. And it comes through knowing Jesus Christ and through Him, God the Father. And God's thoughts and attitudes toward mankind have all been made known by Christ. And all that Jesus is and does interprets and explains to us who God is and what he does. And so the simplest believer who, who sees Jesus Christ sees the glory of God full of grace and truth. Or as Jesus says here in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And how deeply grateful we should be. So how can we know the Father? Jesus makes Him known. Jesus is the revelation of God, and that revelation leaves human minds staggered and amazed. You know, Jesus said with utter simplicity, Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, there's nothing more to God than what you see in me. So you want to know about God? Do we, do we want to know about God? Do we want to know what God is like? What God is like? Jesus. I mean, let, let me illustrate it like this. You know, if you could take a picture of the invisible, almighty God, after you had that picture developed, of course, we don't develop film anymore, but if you took it in to have it developed, after it was developed, there would be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has revealed the invisible God to us. And Jesus came into this world to show us what the Father is essentially like. He, he makes him known to us. And so just as a word explains an unseen thought, so Jesus, the living word, explains the unseen God to us. Everything that God is, Christ is. And so for us to be imitators of God, then we must be imitators of Christ. But is this even possible? I mean, is it? I mean, seriously, is it even possible for us to be imitators of God? Yes, it is. Of course it is. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't tell us to be imitators of God. Well, how? Well, when we're saved, the Holy Spirit immerses us into the body of Christ, uniting us with Christ. Holy Spirit seals us. He's a guarantee of our inheritance. He also indwells us. He strengthens us with power in our inner being. The Holy Spirit also enables and empowers us to live the Christian life. And so it is even possible, uh, it is possible for us to be imitators of God and of Christ. And we're able to do so by God's indwelling Spirit. That's how we're able to live in obedience to God's Word and, and to live for Him. We can't do that in our own strength. And we all know that because we've all tried and failed miserably. We are able to live in obedience to God's word and to live for him only by the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit's enabling power. 
And so we, we are able to be imitators of Christ and thus imitators of God, following uh, his teaching, example, and, and we should take them seriously. We should take what, what God and what Christ say in the, in, the, in, in the Word seriously. You know, we should be asking, well, what, what is it that, that the Word of God is teaching me to do? What is it that, that Christ is teaching me to do? And then we need to ask the Holy Spirit to enable us and empower us to actually do it. So that we're not just hearers of the word and, 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 and not doers. Because those who hear and don't do are deceiving themselves. And so for those who are saved, Paul lays down this highest and greatest of all standards. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God. But why are we to be imitators of God? Why are, why are we to be like God in our daily lives? Why? Because first and foremost, we are God's children. Look back at the verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Children. Children. And Paul has already talked about this earlier in the letter. We saw it in chapter 1 where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then in chapter 2, he said in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I mean, every true believer is a child of God. You know, there's this thing that, that everybody on the, on the face of the planet is a child of God. Not true. We're his creatures and he is our creator. But only believers are, are children of God. And every true believer is a child of God. We've been adopted into God's family. He has made us sons and daughters. He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. He adopted us into the household and family of God. So He's given us a family called the church, and, he's, and it's filled with brothers and sisters. And so we belong to God. We're related to God as children. And as Peter said, we are partakers of the divine nature. And God's nature speaks of His life, His character, His moral excellence. You know, when we were born again, we became children of God. The Spirit of God indwells us. And so the very life and nature of God is within us. We are, we are new creations. We have a new life with new attitudes, dispositions, appetites, behaviors, desires, etc. We are no longer by nature children of wrath, but we are by nature children of God. You know, we, we have God's spiritual DNA, you could say. And our lives are changed. I mean, just as a baby shares the nature of its parents, you know, there's a distinct resemblance uh, so a person born of God shares the divine nature of God. There's a distinct resemblance. There's a sharing of certain characteristics. Nature, our nature determines our appetites. I mean, that, that's true. Nature determines appetite. You know, the pig wants slop and the dog will even eat its own vomit, according uh, to Second Peter. But the sheep desires green pastures. Nature also determines behavior. An eagle flies because it has an eagle's nature. A dolphin swims because that's the nature of the dolphin. Nature determines environment. Squirrels climb trees, moles burrow underground, trout swim in the water. Nature also determines association. Lions travel in prides, sheep in flocks, and fish in schools. And so if nature determines appetite, and it does, and we have God's nature within, which we do, then we ought to have an appetite for that which is pure and holy and just and right. I mean, our, our behavior ought to be like that of God, and we ought to live in the kind of spiritual environment that is suited to our nature. 
which means we'll no longer find our pleasures in the atmosphere of the world. The fellowship of God's people will be where we feel most at home. You know, we're going to associate with those that, that share our nature. And again, we're going to desire the things God desires, love the things God loves, hate the things God hates. We're going to live godly or godlike lives. I mean, the only normal life for the child of God is a godly life, and godly living is the result of the new nature within. We are partakers of the divine nature. Partaking or participating in the divine nature simply means that as believers, through the power of the Spirit, we begin to change positively and, and demonstrate more and more of the character of God in our lives as we seek to live a Christ-like life. And it's an ongoing process. You know, we are continually being changed into His likeness. And, and as time goes on, we're going to become more and more like Him. And then finally, we're going to see Him. We're going to be like Him. And finally, we're going to also be freed from the very presence of sin. But in the meanwhile, we're to be growing in godliness or Christ-likeness, becoming imitators of God. We're to be imitators of God because we're children of God. But what is so amazing is that not only are we his children, but we are his beloved children. Isn't that what the verse says? Beloved children. And this word beloved is a derivative of the word agape. And it means dearly loved and cherished, sometimes preferred above all others and treated with partiality. We are God's dearly loved children. Think of that. All true believers are the objects of God, God's incomprehensible special love. We are His beloved children. And He has shown His love for us, His care for us, and His concern for us, and He will keep on showing those things. He will just keep on. He will never fail. I mean, do you know that, that if you're a, a true Christian, do you know that, if, that you're true to God? If you're a true Christian, do you know this morning that you're, you're dear to God? I mean, do you really know that? I know you've, you've sang in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, but that doesn't mean you really know it or understand it. I mean, do you know that if you're a true Christian, you're dear to God? You know, that you're His dearly, loved child. Well, I have the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word for saying this. We are His beloved children. And God knows each and every one of His children. And He knows us one by one. In fact, the Bible tells us the very hairs on our heads are all numbered. Some of us are making that a little easier job, but our very hairs are numbered. One man said this, God's interest in and concern for his children is infinitely greater than the greatest and the noblest natural parent's interest in his or her child. God is lovingly concerned about us. He watches us just as the natural parent watches his little child beginning to walk for the first time or as the child goes out to school for the first time. He stands at the gate and watches him as he goes round the corner and out of sight. That is an expression of loving interest. It is not a mechanical relationship. Children are dear. Children are beloved. And says Paul, that is God's relationship to us. He has looked down upon us and he loves us. He is interested in us. We are dear to his heart. He is taking an intense personal interest in us. That's an amazing truth. Absolutely amazing. And I think sometime, sometimes in the church today, we don't think it's that amazing because we think we're deserving of it or we're worthy of it. We're not deserving or worthy of anything except eternal punishment. 
And that displays the greatness of God's grace and the greatness of His love, that He would love uh, people like us, sinners like us. I mean, one of the great problems with the church is that we really don't comprehend God's love. And that's why in chapter 3, Paul prayed that the Ephesians, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. It should be our prayer as well, to comprehend God's love for us. I'm talking about God's love for us. Not what is... uh, uh, not, not, not what we see in, in so many evangelical churches today, this sentimental, mushy, uh, you know, it's just a sentimentality. It's not love at all. We need to pray that we would be able to comprehend God's love for us. But you know, as believers... We're so conscious of our own failures that although we hide from others the mess we've made of our lives, and we know we haven't even measured up to, to God's own hopes and dreams, let alone, uh, or our own hopes and dreams, let alone God's. And so we have a hard time believing that God could love us. But you see, Scripture everywhere begins on that basis. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's just uh, a few verses down. Well, the next verse, actually, verse 2. And then in chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God demonstrated his love, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. I mean, Scripture everywhere begins on the basis that God loves us. And how amazing to know that God loves us even though he knows absolutely everything about us. He knows our likes, our dislikes, the wrong things we've done, the evil thoughts, the whole sorry mess. And yet he still loves us. As born-again believers, we are dearly beloved children. We are his dearly loved children. We are the constant recipients of God's love. And so what's our response to this love? What is our response to this love? Is it, well, if God loves me this, this much, and I'm under grace, I can just go out and live the life I, I want to live? Doesn't matter if I sin, God loves me. It's just a loving old grandfather who winks at our sin. No, not at all. What is our response to his love? Well, if we really understand his love for us and and what he has done for us to make us his children, then the greatest desire of our lives should be to show our love to him and to please him in everything. And if we really understand God's love for us and what he has done for us to make us his children, we're going to want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In other words, live in a way that is appropriate or fitting and consistent with who the Lord is uh, to us and what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for us. We're going to live in such a way that reflects or displays how much he is worthy of our love and obedience and, and worship. Because see, you always want to please the one you love. 
And so if we are his dearly beloved children, our supreme desire in life should be to want to please him and to give him joy. One man said, we are told that there is joy among the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And that joy is also in the heart of God as his children live in a manner that is worthy of him. So Paul is telling us to become imitators of God. Why? Because he is our father and we are his beloved children. And the fact that God is our father and we belong to his family means that we should never want to do anything to disrupt the family relationship. We should never do anything to to bring disgrace and dishonor upon the family and upon our father's name. Because as children, we, we represent our heavenly father and his family. I mean, as people look at us, they, don't, they not only judge us, they judge our father and our family. I mean, the children represent the family and, and represent the father, and, and therefore we shouldn't be thinking of ourselves so much as, as of the family and our father, because none of us lives to himself, Paul said to the Romans, and none of us dies to himself. And we, if we're Christians... We cannot separate ourselves from our relationship to God. We can't say, well, I want to be saved, really meaning I don't want to go to hell. I want to be forgiven, but but I don't want this whole Christian life deal. I want to have a good time, and I want to go do this and that and the other and, and live my own kind of life, but yet have my sins forgiven and go to heaven in the end. That's not Christianity. That doesn't exist. If you're a Christian, a genuine Christian, if you're a child of God, you're a member of the family. You're a member of God's household. And what matters is the honor of the family, not what you want and like. It doesn't matter if you like it. Is it true? Is it true according to the Word of God? Well, then it doesn't matter what you like. And this is true in human relationships. So how much more here? As a dearly loved children of God, not wanting to bring shame upon our father or the family, we're going to be careful about our behavior. We're going to be careful about how we conduct ourselves, what we do, what we say, how we act, where we go. We're going to seek to live in a way that pleases Him, that that honors Him. We're going to live in a way that is going to adorn the gospel. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, people can't look at a child and his behavior without thinking of the Father. And Jesus is saying that our conduct as Christians should make people think of our Heavenly Father and give Him glory. Not curse Him or curse Christianity or Christians but give Him glory. So let me ask you, you know, based on your actions, your words, your behavior, your conduct, what do people think about God? Based on your actions, your words, your conduct, What do people think about God? What do they think about our Heavenly Father? What do they think about the church? What do they think about Christianity? Do they think, oh, so much for Christianity. Look at that person. They're no different than me. I don't want anything to do with that. Or do they think, man, there's something different about that person. I don't know what it is, but something's different. And I I want to talk to them. I want to ask them about it. There's no greater privilege than being a Christian and the beloved children of God. We just... I mean, so many people, because of the easy believism that has been uh, preached for 
decades. So many people think that, that Christianity is, is um, you know, it's all about them. It centers around them. That, that's all it is. It's all about them and their blessing and, and, and this and that and so forth. But it's not. It's about God. It's about Christ. I mean, it is a great privilege to be a Christian, to be a beloved child of God. I mean, we belong to the family, the household of God. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. We belong there. But he's left us in this world for a while to live for him and to become more and more like him. And so as Paul said here, we are continually and increasingly to become imitators of God as beloved children. And in verse 2, we see the manner in which we're to do this. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us. But we'll save that for next week, Lord willing. So let me ask you something as we close this morning. And that's not a cue for you to zip your Bibles into... into and to turn me off. I'm serious. I'm not finished. Are you imitating God as His dearly loved child? Does that describe your life? You know, when we hang around a person long enough, his or her character starts to rub off on us. It's the same with God. We must constantly be enjoying His presence through the Word of God, prayer, worship, because it's only by spending time with Him that we are able to become like Him. And as we spend time with God, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. And I pray that this is true of each one of us so that we continue to become imitators of God as beloved children, growing more and more and more into His likeness. But maybe... You do not, nor can you imitate God because you're not His beloved child. You don't belong to the family because you've never been born again and received a new life in Christ. Well, if this describes you, then uh, I want to urge you this morning to look to Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us as an offering and sacrifice that was accepted by God in payment for our sins. I mean, he lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserved. In other words, he died in our place, the godly for the ungodly, the holy and the sinless for the unholy and the sinful. He died in our place. And he is today offering salvation, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who will turn to him confess their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ alone as their only hope of salvation. And so if you've never trusted in Christ alone, you've never put your faith and trust in Him as your only hope of salvation, then, then we urge you to do so today. I mean, this is of the utmost importance. This is urgent. Time is short. And death is sure. So if you've never trusted in Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, then we urge you to do so today. And if you don't know what to say to Him, then cry out to Him like one man in the Bible did, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And God will hear that cry. And if you have questions about what it is to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, two of our elders and their wives will be in the prayer room just 
down this hallway, first door on the left, after the service. And they would love to speak with you and answer any questions you might have about what it is to trust Christ and, and to be a Christian. They'd love to speak with you, pray with you, pray for you. And so take advantage. Uh, take advantage of that. And don't put off until later what you know you should do today. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see.